Welcome to They Get It. My name's Kelsey, and my co-host Emma and I love direct-to-consumer brands. Whether it's an amazing customer experience or a really killer social strategy, this podcast will feature the brands and founders who just get it. Hi, Emma. Hi, Kelsey. I miss having you in Toronto. I know. I know. It's a weird transition for Kelsey and I because some of you know, maybe all of you know, I don't know, that we have been roommates for the past year (laughs) and we're not going to be roommates anymore. And it's weird. It's It's sad. And I think the summer is just a weird time in general because I'm traveling, then you're traveling, then we're missing each other. And so even if both of us were like on more regular schedules, we'd overlap more. But I feel like I haven't seen you in years. I know. It's literally been years. It's crazy. (laughs) But we're just going to make up for it by traveling the world. Ah, traveling the world. Yes. So um, Emma and I have talked a lot about this next chapter in our lives, which sounds so formal and ridiculous, but I promise it's not. Um, Just with like being able to work from home, Emma leaving her job, focusing on school. I just feel like the whole world or our whole lives are just in a state of flux. And so instead Mm -hmm. of being like nervous or being anxious about that, we've decided to embrace it and actually lean into it. And so this next year for Emma and I is going to be a big year of just taking what opportunities life presents to us and being really flexible. Honestly, letting life surprise us, letting, letting life surprise us. And part of that is we would love to start traveling and doing in-person interviews with people in different areas. So if you know of an entrepreneur in a certain city or anything like that, let us know. We are totally open to, yeah, letting life surprise us and seeing where we go. And yeah, especially if I can plug this, especially entrepreneurs in New York, LA, and Austin, Texas. Girls have been chomping at the bit trying to get into the US, but COVID is really making our plans difficult. But we're sitting here, we're manifesting. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to (laughs) happen. It sure will. Like this, this honestly, this conversation that we're sharing with you today would have been a great example of one that would have just been fun to do in person. And so I do think that's definitely, you know, on the horizon for us. Um, We get to talk to Denise Lee, the founder of Alala, and you've probably seen reviews online or you've seen their advertising, their photography. Or you've seen them in one of their many retailers like Farfetch or Revolve. Huge, huge. And they're so good at PR. She's been in so many interviews and so many magazines. She's all over um, YouTube, like I mentioned. So anyways, just love, love, love Alala. And we didn't really, we didn't know if Denise would be open to coming on. And she booked in. We had a great conversation. Um, And what's really special about her brand is that they're a bit more of like a challenger brand or an empowerment brand than a lot of other players in the space. And so if you actually think about like the name Alala and where it comes from, she was a Greek goddess and it was literally to signify a battle cry. And so when you think of this empowerment or the strength behind the brand, it literally goes straight from their name down to, you know, the floor of the retail stores that they that they occupy space in. And so honestly, Denise had a lot to share. Um, Sometimes in these conversations, it's hard to get tactical, right? There's so much ground you want to cover. There's so many topics that you find interesting. It's hard to go down into the weeds and actually pull out 
tangible advice. That was not the case for Denise. (laughs) She had so many great little tidbits of things that she had learned along the way, working with some really, really influential entrepreneurs. And it was a lot of fun to listen to. Mm -hmm. It was. I really liked her outlook on entrepreneurship. And I think she gives a really real perspective into what that looks like. And I also appreciated, and we touched on just the fact of there can be so much pressure in society around like making yes. life seem great all the time and business is going great and all that kind of stuff. And especially in the age of social media, it's so easy to fall into this trap of thinking that everyone has it together and you don't. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was just a good reminder that we're all human everyone has ups and downs, whether or not you see them online and um, and just how to kind of avoid feeling that societal pressure, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. Turning it into like motivation, understanding that it's going to happen inevitably, but that actually means that you're like making progress, right? Mm-hmm. So all about perspective. Mm-hmm. And with that, let's quit rambling and get into the episode. Let's do it. Welcome back to another episode. Today we have Denise Lee with us here, who is the founder of Alala Activewear. Denise, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to dive into everything with you. For starters, though, let's hear the backstory. How did Alala come to be? So Alala is luxury athleisure for powerful women, and the brand is now seven years old. I started Alala out of a personal passion of mine for fitness and a love for fashion as well. Um, My background is totally in the fashion and apparel industry. I actually grew up in a family where my dad owned clothing factories. So I always say like it's in my blood um, to be in this industry. I came to New York um, to pursue my love for fashion after college and ended up actually after business school working for um, a very successful entrepreneur who has had a lot of brand building and fashion brand building experience. His name is Chris Birch. Um, And while I was working for Chris, I learned a lot about just how to build a brand from the ground up. Um, He was working on several clothing brands that we would go to factories in China to look for product at. We would, you know, go look at real estate properties for stores. And so I really got a great foundation for understanding how to build a fashion brand from working with Chris. At the time that I was working for him, too, um, I was training for a triathlon and being such a lover of fashion and clothing I wanted to go out there and buy some new activewear that would inspire me to train for my triathlon that would make me feel good while I was working out. And honestly, at the time, which was 2011, 2012, there wasn't as many options as there are now. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was big brands like Nike and Adidas and Lululemon. And somehow I just didn't feel like even though the clothing was great, I didn't feel like it really reflected my own sense of style and my personality. And so that's where the idea for Alala came along. I wanted something more fashion forward, clothing that was more versatile that you could wear all day. Um, Now it doesn't seem as such like a revolutionary idea, but at the time there really wasn't that many other new activewear brands out there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that's when that's when I started working on the the foundation for building Alala as a brand. Totally. Totally. I'm always so curious as to why people pick the industry that they end up going into. Obviously, your parents were in the fashion and apparel space. What was it about fashion that drew you to it? I love the transformative power of fashion. And I feel that especially applies for workout gear. Um, You know, I think we can all relate to that feeling that when you put on something you really love and you feel good in, it really changes your perception of yourself, even for a moment, even for an evening, you know, and gives you a sense of pleasure. And I think that, you know, we can't, we can't minimize that, even though it sounds frivolous sometimes. I do think that, you know, there's a lot of power in what we wear. Um, one thing that I'm super proud of with Alala is that women write in and they say, you know, wearing Alala makes me feel like a superhero. Um, and that's an amazing thing to hear as a clothing brand. You know, we want to empower women in our own way. And I feel like wearing something that really fits you and you feel really great in um, has that power to brighten up your day. hundred percent. And especially when you think about like the relationship that a lot of women have with working out, it's one of like a lot of obligation or kind of being reactive to working out. And then there are the other people on the end of the spectrum that find it meditative. And that is a source of like almost like therapy for them. How did you land on this powerful branding? How did you decide that that's where you were going to fall on the spectrum? That's a really great question. Um, I think Branding, honestly, and getting to know even my own brand has taken time. Uh, You know, when you start and when I started Alala, I always wanted it to be something that felt empowering Um, just because, you know, there's so much strength in the activity of working out, bettering yourself, doing something for yourself. Um, Alala actually is the name of a Greek goddess and her name stands for a battle cry. So something very also empowering about um, Alala as a brand itself. I feel like, you know, again, coming back to like this idea of goddesses or superheroes, like women do so much in their lives and, you know, to take time out for yourself and to better yourself, I think is such an amazing um amazing thing for us to do. And so, you know, there's always been a sense of power and empowerment behind the brand. And I think as we've gotten feedback from our customers, as we've developed ourselves as a brand, like that idea of women empowering other women has also been very central to, you know, what um, I believe in as a founder and honestly what my entire team believes in. We are actually an all-female team. Um, here at Alala, we are 11 women running this brand. So you know, I think we really practice what we preach in terms of supporting each other and building each other up. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of, I think, where that powerful woman kind of idea comes from has been very like organic to just who we are as a team and as a brand. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. And I completely agree with the transformative power of fashion. I think that's something I learned a lot over COVID when all of a sudden we weren't going anywhere and you could wear sweatsuits every day and it didn't matter. Like once I actually started dressing up again, you feel 
so good. Like I remember I would have days where I didn't have anywhere to go, but I would just put on different outfits because it felt good. So um, I totally, totally get that. Something I'm curious about hearing more of, obviously you went to university and then um, you worked for Chris Birch after that. Was this all in preparation to be an entrepreneur? Was that always kind of your end goal? Yeah. You know, my dad and my mom are both entrepreneurs. Um, So it's definitely been something that I've always wanted to do. And I feel like my stopping point was where a lot of people stop is like, what's my idea? What am I going to do? You know, and Mm -hmm. um, with training for the triathlon, I kind of fell into this idea that there could be, you know, a more fashion forward active brand. Um, But but, you know, I think the idea is really just the first step. It's like a little seed that you can like grab onto. And it doesn't even necessarily always have to be such a big idea. Um, But just something that, you know, I personally was very passionate about and very interested in pursuing. And I knew also that I had, you know, relevant background and experience to actually make something of it. I think that's what makes this so special. And I was doing a bunch of reading um, on your story beforehand. And I have to say, it was almost refreshing to hear another perspective. Emma and I have been so ingrained in this D2C hustle culture, scale at all costs, growth at all costs, venture capital to, to facilitate this growth. And I think your story is so different, right? You came in, you knew that fashion was the industry or the vertical that you wanted to pursue. And instead of jumping in feet first and figuring it out, I actually think your story is really powerful. You went in, you worked at Armani Exchange, you kind of learned the branding and the marketing side of things. Then by the time you started working with Chris Birch, you got to see almost like the operations side of it. And so I want to talk a little bit about those things that you learned. And I certainly don't want to say like, oh, you did things, you learned things the easier way. But if you look at kind of the grand scheme of things, being on your back foot all the time, jumping in two feet first, that's certainly not the easy way. And so I definitely see the appeal in going in and learning from the masters first. Let's go back to Armani Exchange specifically. What were you responsible for at that point? And what kinds of things did you take into building Alala? So at Armani Exchange, I worked in the marketing department, which was fairly small, was um, maybe like four or five people at the time. Um, We did a variety of marketing um, channels. So we did print, outdoor. This was, guys, when MySpace was still around. Oh, my God. (laughs) It was definitely, you know, digital as well, but it, it was a while ago, and I really learned, I think, of one, the power of imagery because it was a fashion brand. You know, they relied a lot on like beautiful images to communicate the war. Um, And so, you know, I really learned how to craft like brand story and brand, you know, characteristics around visual um, photography. And I think, you know, if you look at Alala's photography now, it, it clearly defines, I think, who we are as a brand in terms of its sophistication and also the diversity that we, you know, focus on with our model choices. Um, So that was a big lesson. And I think also another thing I really learned from Armani Exchange was really kind of this like idea of like, 
amplification of message. Um, what they would do was to, you know, focus all their messaging in certain times of the year instead of like spreading it out through, hmm. you know, th- just flat through the year. Oh, so right. obviously, you know, there are times where they like made a lot of noise, all the events, all the social media, like everything kind of happened at the same time to make an impact um, in kind of the, you know, the consciousness of, of their audience hmm. instead of kind of just like spreading it out. So, so that was an interesting strategy. And I think that was my first job out of college, my first real job. And mm-hmm. because it was such a small team, they let me, you know, attend meetings with uh, publishers of magazines, like the publisher of oh, Vogue wow. to our meeting. And, you know, they would let me sit in on those meetings, even sometimes like contribute and talk about things during the meetings and lead projects and stuff. And so, you know, I think being given those opportunities really allowed me to flex not just my marketing muscle, but just like my management muscle as well. Um, even though, you know, I was 22 and didn't really know oh what I was doing. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm really grateful for those opportunities to step into something a little more uncomfortable, you know, be face-to-face with people that, you know, are way above my level at that point um, and be able to, you know, converse with them, have meaningful business conversations with them. Um, so I'm really grateful for that because I think it helped Mm. me grow up and learn a lot in a very short amount of time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't have a choice. You were just like put into all these situations and I'm just really proud of you for rising to the occasion. I feel like that's not an easy thing to do. And you recount your experiences like, oh yeah, that's just what happened. But I guarantee 99% of people in your position would be shaking in their boots. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There was definitely some shaking going on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I Right. Kind of like you kind of have to try it before, you know, to know how it feels to be in that situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you do. And you realize it's so funny as you get older, you realize how many people still don't have it figured out. Yeah, they may be 10 years older than you, but it does not actually mean that they know so much more than you do, even at that young age. I totally agree. Yeah, it's okay. I'm gonna get really micro here. And then uh, I promise we can move off of the Armani topic. But you mentioned that they do more pulse campaigns than evergreen or always on. What do you think of that strategy? I think it's really interesting, um, especially I feel like if you don't have a lot of resources, not that they didn't or they did, but just in terms of like making an impact, you know, I think especially these days, there's so much noise that it's interesting to kind of like pull all your resources into like one moment in time and really Mm -hmm. try and like, you know, build that out to as as big of a a noise as you can make. Um, I do think it's a good strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, I mean, there's obviously so many different ways to approach it. So it's, it's cool to see kind of both sides of it. Um, One thing now kind of to fast forward to Alala and building Alala. um, One thing that I read in an article was you noticed after your first season, you were starting to see people come back. Um, recurring customers and you were starting to see orders get bigger from your retail partners. Um, What do you think led to that? Was it having a really good product? Was it building good relationships? What, what went in into your recurring customer base? 
I think it's all about relationships, to be honest with you. Um, definitely the product side has to be strong. I think if you don't have good product, people are not going to come back, no matter how good your marketing is, no matter how good your brand is. If they didn't like your product, um, I think it's hard to get them back. But on top of that, I really think like building relationships with your customers, whether they're your direct customers from you know your e-com site or your buyers that you work with on the wholesale side, Um, we treat everybody the way we want to be treated. Um, and I think that, you know, says a lot about us. Um, we really lean into also being a small business and a women run small business. So, you know, during COVID, um, I would write emails to our customer base, just letting them know like what's happening with us, like what's going on at the warehouse, what's happening with the team. Um, and you know, those are really well received. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, founders might fall into this like trap or this idea that, oh, you know, like, oh, we have to be professional and we have to be like this big brand and, you know, we have to like do things, you know, just send out like official marketing emails all the time. And I actually think that, you know, the more we lean into reminding people that there are people running this brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> small team of people running this brand. It's been really a great strategy for us. Um, That's just something I also like really just believe in as, you know, a person that you have to connect. And I know for a fact that even on the wholesale side, certain brands are easier to work with than others. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we always, um, we work really closely with our buyers to understand, you know, what's working for them, what's not. If, you know, there's a style that they bought that doesn't work for them, we'll try and swap it out for something else that does instead of just being like, you know, too bad, you bought it, it's yours, we don't want to talk mm. to you anymore. Um, so we'll work with them and say, oh, like the blue, they, nobody's buying the blue stuff, like let's switch you out, you know, are the purple selling really well, so let's try some purple instead. And I think people really appreciate that. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I have a quick question. You, you mentioned you try to remind people that you're a small team. What does that actually mean in practice? Um, you know, it's sending out emails to it's sending out emails to our customer base from like different people on the team. Like sometimes, you know, our VP of e-commerce will send out an email um, to our database, or I'll send out an email and just talk about things that are not just like here's the new sports bra, buy this now, you know, it's talking Ah. about what's happening behind the scenes of the brand on social media. We are really trying to, you know, kind of showcase the team more and showcase more behind the scenes stuff that we're doing. Um, And I think it just reminds people that, oh yeah, there's like people, you know, behind this brand. Actually, it's a small team of people behind this brand Um, and, and just create more connection that way. Yeah. It makes sense. And I also really liked what you said about working with your retailers. I think it's a really interesting dynamic between these small, partly direct-to-consumer brands and then partly retail wholesale brands. It's a it's a fine line, right? Because there is some cannibalization that might happen between the two channels. But if you look at distribution and risk, you're kind of hedging your bets having that wholesale or retail arm there to test consumer preferences and things like that. Um, So I guess I have a couple of questions, but I'll start with when you initially set up the relationships with the equinoxes of the world or other retail partners that you have, what was the nature of those relationships and how long were those initial terms for? 
Um, you know, it's it's a very seasonal kind of thing. So let's say we when we started, we had four seasons a year, right? So an Equinox or a retailer would come in and purchase that first season. And then a, a lot of times they would kind of see how it does for them and then come back and purchase again. There's no real for us at least no real set contract of saying like okay we have to work together for an entire year um it really depends on like the performance of the brand hmm. and again depends on the relationship that you have with you know that retailer so maybe this season was a little weaker but last season was really strong and so you know a lot of times we'll hear from retailers um that they just really believe in the brand as part of oh. you know their offering too and so, you know, maybe it, it's not realistic to think like you're just going to be like on the up and up, like every season is just going to be better yeah. than the last, you know, like, yeah, sometimes it happens and that's great when it does. But sometimes, you know, you go through little bumps and learnings. And so um, I do think, again, like, you know, to to establish like really strong relationships with retailers, like there's a big relationship component to that and just a big kind of like under mutual understanding that you have to support each other's businesses. Mm. Oh, I love that. And I think it goes back to businesses nowadays are not just doing business for business's sake. You're doing it because you have mutual values and there's alignment between the two brands. And so it's actually not surprising to me to hear you have that perspective. And I think that's a big part of why you're so successful. What are some other things that brands can do working with these retailers to improve that relationship? Yeah, I think, you know, again, with the support, uh, that's a big one, whether that is, you know, understanding their selling and suggesting other things that they might, you know, that might work really well for their specific customer. We do a lot of like um, co-marketing with some of our uh, retail partners. So, mm -hmm. you know, we'll do, we'll feature them on our Instagram stories or we'll talk about them. Uh, we'll share, you know, um, UGC or like marketing materials with them that they can use. Um, we'll even like, you know, do giveaways or do something with their store staff, like a, like a competition, like a sales competition or something for their store staff that, you know, whoever sells the most Alala this month will get a gift card or get something. Um, hmm. There's a lot of like great creative ways to, I think, work with um, our customers. Sometimes we'll offer, you know, a free shipping week. Like if you order this week, we'll throw in free shipping for you. Um, and I think it's just constantly like checking in with them, understanding like how their business is doing, how we could support their business. Um, those are all things that, you know, have worked well for us. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I loved your mention of even just, yeah, being collaborative. If a certain product isn't moving and communicating that and making sure that they're happy with your partnership, I think makes so much sense. And it is that sense of building for the long term. It's not just like, okay, sell these products for us right now because that's what's going to move our bottom line right now. It's how do we build a, a long term partnership? So I love that. Um, we also do um, like co branded, you know collaborations together, which melds kind of a Lala style with some of, you know, the retailers like needs and wants for their own customer. Um, and those have worked well for us as well. And I can imagine they're really fun to work on too. They are super fun. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in one of your earlier responses that 
you know, it's not always just an upward trajectory and it's not always just going swimmingly. During those kind of dips or those lower periods, what are some things you do to keep yourself motivated and moving forward? I think it's taking a step back and seeing how far, you know, we've come and all the things that we've done. Um, That's really important for me to kind of keep everything in perspective. At this point, you know, I've run the business for seven years. So there's things that I see that that are patterns, right? Like, we know that every summer, like it's a little bit slower in the summer, and then it picks up. So I think just understanding kind of kind of how far you've already come and all the things you've achieved is really important um, for kind of keeping the perspective in place. Uh, personally, for myself, whenever I start to like panic <laughs> about you know sales being down or something's not going right or you know somebody's mad at us about something, um, I have a pretty good gratitude practice of my own, like I'll sit down and, you know, write out what I'm grateful for almost every day. Um, And I feel like even taking three, five minutes to do that um, is really, really important for keeping things in perspective. And yeah, like some, some bad things and some bad news last more than a day, last more than a week. But I feel like if you keep focused on how far you've come and also what you're grateful for, um, it really helps, you know, kind of get through those bad times. Oh, yeah. We love a gratitude exercise. My poor boyfriend gets so annoyed at me. Every morning I make him do one. <laughs> and I feel like I'm doing him a big favor. He doesn't really see it that way. But what can you do? Um Yeah, you mentioned one time, I forget who you were talking to, but you did mention that entrepreneurship was, you know, a journey of self-discovery. And I've noticed there is a little bit of fight in you where you're like, I don't care if this is my natural inclination, I'm going to do it this other way anyway. Talk to me a little bit about the journey of kind of learning who you are as a person. Yeah, I think that has been a big part of my entrepreneurial journey. Um, And, you know, I'm sure you guys can relate, like, I'm super type A, I've always been like good at school and good at memorizing things and Mm -hmm. doing well at school, but it doesn't necessarily set you up to be an entrepreneur because there are so many things that, you know, starting a business and being an entrepreneur, like, are out of your control almost that, oh yeah, you know, it's not just about studying harder. It's not just about working harder, you know, Um, I think there's a lot more to that. And, uh, you know, I started out Alala like very, very type A and I would be so down on myself every time something failed or it didn't perform up to, you know, what we're expecting or I thought we were going to do this many million this year and we didn't. And, you know, I took a lot of things very personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of years ago, I actually uh, met a coach who I started working with um, quite intensely for about a year. And, you know, she was like a mindset coach. She taught me how to meditate. She taught me how to kind of deal with a lot of the stress in my life that I couldn't control um, in a way that was like a lot more healthy (laughs) for myself. Um, And I think, you know, through kind of understanding what triggers me, why I feel the way I do, you know, I feel like for myself, there's a big like fear of failure that 
you know, I had to get over mm -hmm. almost yep. um, to be a little more gentle with myself when things don't go the way I want them to, to know that I have, you know, the ability within myself to change what's happening um, for the better, even if it's just in my mind to like, look at the same problem with a different perspective. That's not so like, you know, blaming myself for everything that happened, like getting mad at myself for things. Um, so yeah, working with a coach for me was really a transformative experience in terms of how I look at my business and how I look at myself as an entrepreneur and how I deal with stress. So if anybody's like in that position, I feel like, you know, being able to talk to a coach or maybe it's a therapist, I don't know. Um, and being able to kind of like break down what's going on inside your mind um, in a productive way it really helped me. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm a big proponent for that. Absolutely. Working with a coach totally transformed not only just how I felt, but also it helped me figure out like what kind of work I want to do and what I'm interested in. And yes, I completely agree. Anyone who has the opportunity to go down the coaching route, incredible. I think especially for entrepreneurs, because it can be such a lonely, isolating experience. Um, having that like confidant, I think would be huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also feel like, you know, like there's almost this pressure, right? That like, what like maybe it's social media or whatever it is like that you always feel like oh yeah like I have to tell everybody I'm doing great like I have to tell everybody you know things are better this year than they were last year and um there's so much pressure mm -hmm. to always you know have that big smile on your face and stuff and I think that is important because you know people don't really want to hear bad news <laughs> like, <laughs> they ask you how business is like they don't want to hear that it's terrible mm -hmm. um, but I do think that there's so much pressure, right? To be like, oh, everybody says their business is doing great. Everybody says their business is better than ever. Like, but mine isn't, or, you know, I'm struggling with this. And, and I think there can be a balance to, you know, wanting to put your best foot forward, but also like having some honesty and authenticity that this journey is not always so easy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it is like when you're in one of those low points and then it seems like everyone around you is doing so great. It just makes it that much more lonely and isolating and hard to get through. And yeah, societal pressure is a tough one, I think, especially in the realm of social media when it's just in our face all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel you on that one for sure. Um. One other thing you've been quoted saying is a fast, bad decision is better than a slow, good one. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your framework or process is for decision making? Yeah, uh, that's one of my favorite kind of like ideas <laughs> or quotes. Um, so good. I really think it has to do with the idea of momentum and always moving forward. I think, you know, some people, myself included, like we're very prone to overthinking things and, you know, getting paralyzed by all the decisions we have to make about the certain thing and what will happen if we make a bad decision. But there's something to be said about always having that momentum, always moving forward, even though you're maybe taking little steps forward, trying to figure things out. It's way better to do that than to sit there and overanalyze a problem. Um, I think, you know, like people always say like fail fast, right? So mm -hmm. I think if you trust yourself enough 
to make decisions, even if they're the bad decisions, you're quick in in responding to that bad decision by making another decision. And I feel like if you have good intuition, there's no way you're going to make like 10 bad decisions in a row. You might make a mistake, <laughs> correct yourself and be like, oh, that wasn't good. Like, let's move this way, you know? Yeah. Um, so I do think like, especially for entrepreneurs, like for people who aspire to be entrepreneurs, like you just have to keep doing. And I think you learn by doing, you make mistakes by doing, but you'll keep going and you'll go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you sit around and just like think about every single decision and, and want to make the perfect next decision. Um, things move so much slower that way. And I feel like, you know, there is momentum to to this work and you have to kind of just trust yourself and keep going. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think the big piece of why that framework works is that so many decisions are reversible, right? So at least if we're maintaining momentum, we know where to backtrack and where to forge ahead. If you're not making the decisions, you don't have access to that next layer of information. How could you decide where to go after that? I think that's really interesting. And I, I actually wonder if that good judgment came from working so clo- so closely with Chris and with Armani Exchange. Do you feel like uh, watching him make decisions helped you as a decision maker? Oh yeah, for sure. So Chris has been an entrepreneur all his life and he's extremely intuitive. Um, I wish I was as intuitive as he is, but he <laughs> always made quick, quick decisions, you know? And um, were they always the right decisions? No, sometimes mm-hmm. I don't know why are you, why did you decide to do that that way? Um, But he just had so much desire to move things forward, Um, you know, and that I think was something I 100% learned from him. Um, And I still believe that is a super important characteristic and trait for for entrepreneurs to have. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I believe it. I mean, you're learning from someone who literally is like the perfect person to watch and to absorb information from. What other lessons did you learn? I, the thing I loved about Chris was he always thought out of the box and he never, and I was always somebody like, I grew up in Asia. I don't know if it's an Asian thing or what it is, but like, you know, I was very like a rule follower. Like uh-huh. you had to do it this way. You have to do things that way. Like this is the way things are done. And, you know, I think someone like Chris watching him, he always questioned why. So why can't we do it this way? You know, why can't we, why can't we do this? Or why can't we do that? And, you know, sometimes he'd be like, if you gave him a good answer, he'd be like, okay, I understand why we can't do that. But a lot of the time, you know, there's no good reason why you can't do something. <laughs> Just because it's the way that, you know, people never do it this way doesn't mean it's the wrong way to do it. Um, so I think from him, I really learned the lesson of like trying to push the boundaries of, you know, what people say I can do or what I think I can do myself. Um, and really question like, why, why, why can I do that? Or like, you know, why is this the way that things are done? Is there a better way to do it? Um, and he's just like, so good at that, that, and so creative in the way he comes up with solutions um, that I honestly aspire to be more like that. Oh, I love it. Those are good ones because 
I feel like when I was new in my career and I'm trying to learn from all of these mentors, I'm kind of using air quotes because I actually, I don't know. I feel like going into these relationships with like a formal mentor agenda is sometimes not the best way to learn because you, you're trying to get too tactical. What I love about the things you took from Chris are like theoretical, they're high level, their approach and their style kinds of learnings that applies in any context right? I feel like that is a major, major key for anyone listening to this podcast. Having these types of thoughts and conversations, maybe just starting in your career, you will learn so much more about watching someone and how they approach their work than you ever will literally writing down, you know, their exact responses or, you know, the, the tactical parts of how they do their job. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to be open to differences of opinions and different ideas. Um, I'm like a big podcast listener. I listen to, you know, a whole bunch of different things. Some things are related to my business. Some things are not. And I think just always, you know, surrounding yourself with, with new ideas, new concepts, new, you know, new businesses. It, it's a really great way to just even expand your own um, way of thinking. A hundred percent. I totally agree. Okay, now I have to ask podcaster to someone that listens to a lot of podcasts. What are you enjoying right now? What podcasts are your favorite? Oh, I I love Tim Ferriss's podcast because mm-hmm. oh, yeah. like he brings on guests that speak on such a variety of topics. Um, you know, one day it might be cryptocurrency, one day it might be, you know, psilocybin mushroom therapy, and <laughs> I find that so fascinating. Yeah, uh, you know, I I just I think his breadth of of knowledge and and the guests he brings on are just so interesting. Um, I also really love this podcast called Manifestation Babe. If anybody's interested in you know learning about manifestation, mm-hmm. I think he has a really great, very positive, realistic take on how to practically you know learn how to manifest. Oh, cool! Uh, yeah, and I've learned a lot from her too. Very cool. I mean, I love all things manifestation, so I'll have to check that out. Before we wrap up, this has been such a fun interview, Denise, but we ask everyone the same question, which is, who do you think gets it? I really look up to um, Sarah Blakely. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) I'm obsessed with her Instagram, and I think she gets it because, one, she trusted herself way early on in her business, you know, 20 years ago when she was starting Spanx, she intuitively trusted her herself. And I think that's an incredible quality. Um, And she's obviously been very, very successful, but I also think she gets it because she's very real and honest with, you know, and (laughs) how she presents herself. She's a mom and, I just love that she, you know, will take pictures of herself, like with no makeup in the morning, seeing her kids pancakes, and then she's running this billion dollar company. I really think that, you know, she brings really nice, like perspective and reality into, into this journey. And I just really appreciate her for that. Uh, I think that's exactly why she gets brought up on like 
the most out of any single entrepreneur. Every time we ask that question, she's brought been brought up so many times. And I think you nailed it. The authenticity is exactly what these other entrepreneurs need to see <laughs> just to get the power, the willpower to keep going. So big, big fans of Sarah Blakely. Maybe she'll come on the podcast at some point. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, Denise, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm literally running to go buy more Alala right now. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you guys for having me. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much. I know I mentioned this in the episode, but this is a very different playbook than the D2C hyper growth playbook that we hear so much. I think for maybe newer brands starting out, if you've never really felt alignment with the, you know, getting a bunch of funding, throwing it all into advertising, not having a highly profitable business, but having large revenue and things like that, if you've never really felt like that was a fit, highly encourage you to reach out to Denise. She's also a coach on the side. And so I feel like that would be an amazing resource for you to go in and just talk to someone who did things a little differently. I think the model was a little different. I think it came down to her experience more than anything else. Working in Armani mm-hmm. Exchange, who is so heavily retail focused, then working with Chris Birch, who clearly is so retail focused. I think it gave her an interesting perspective because she was still young and up and coming. She understood the D2C and the value of owning your customer experience through e-commerce, but she also understood the value of retail and using basically distribution power to your advantage massive learnings there. And I think for me, honestly, it has to come back to the mentorship. It's something that I actually don't feel like I've done a good job with in my own career, finding, seeking out mentors and really maintaining those relationships. I've had really influential people at certain points in my career, but I haven't had that steady mentor that's seen me through different phases of life. And I feel like what Denise got from working with someone like Chris Birch was so valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at how he approaches things, looking at how he makes decisions and looking at how he just like, like challenges the status quo. That is really powerful stuff to learn at what, like 25 years old? Oh, completely. And I think kind of how we touched on the episode that a lot of it is really just like mindset based and like frameworks. It's not about like the actual tactics. And I think that's also so much of the benefit of working with a coach because so much of entrepreneurship is getting up day after day, even when things are hard, even when they're not going well and keeping going and building those muscles. And I think getting help to build those is really in the long term what can make or break you as an entrepreneur. And I also really like you know, this episode is an example of the path to entrepreneurship can be so many different ways. It's like, even though Denise knew her long term was that she wanted to work for herself and build a business, she didn't do that right out of university. And I think it was kind of the same for my path. Like, I took this job at Shopify because it seemed like a cool opportunity. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But throughout my time there, I learned so many of the skills and I just learned about what it even takes to start a business. I mean, especially working at, you know, a company like Shopify that is so gung-ho for entrepreneurs, it gave me exposure to this world that I didn't even know existed. And all of a sudden the world felt like my oyster. And had I not taken that opportunity, I don't know if I would have realized that I ultimately want to work for myself and all of that. So I think it's, yeah, it's really cool. It is really cool. Yeah. We're all just figuring it out one step at a time. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So we will wrap it there for this week. Thank you everyone for listening as always. And go check out our Instagram and let us know who you would like us to bring on next. You can comment on any of our posts or message us. Our Instagram is at they.get.it. Until next week, have a great week. See you then.